tried, brother. I've tried twice to save you, but no matter what I try to do, you're gonna die, Charlie. Ah, <laughs> Charlie. Charlie bit me. Wow. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie, wake up. Ah. Yeah, Charlie. Oh. Seriously, ah. Dad, wake up. Ow. Oh, God, you guys. This is better be pretty freaking Pleasure comes in part from its ability to dispel anxiety, as so many of its theoreticians have noted, but it doesn't simply do that. As both an aesthetic mode and a form of life, its action just as likely produces anxiety, risking transgression, flirting with displeasure, or just confusing things in a way that both intensifies and impedes the pleasure. Comedy has issues. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast. You Lauren Berlant standing, and Lord Allergic, Screedlers. This is Faculty Lee, a mentor to staff only, who has suddenly fallen sick in the last 10 seconds. Just kidding. It's actually Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. This theme music is meant to relate to your interests. The last episode of Game of Thrones that I saw was the Red Wedding. Mostly, I just remember that less people died than I thought would die based on the title, The Red Wedding. Anyways, on this week's episode, we've got the very cool writer Charlie Mark Brighter joining us from New York fucking city. Maybe you've heard of it? And maybe you've seen Charlie's writing in a whole mess of places from art forum to garage to the new inquiry and beyond. Or perhaps you've seen them on Twitter using the preposterous handle, at Berlant Bro. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 107 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Apparently it's Taurus season, and you know what that means. It's time to get stubborn. And by stubborn, I mean fucking rowdy. Are you following Charlie Markbrider's writing? You should be. I don't remember exactly when I first got hip to Charlie's output, but I'm going to say it was because of Brian Droycor and because of Twitter. That seems to me uh, extremely likely. Anyways, they've written for a bunch of neat places like the New Inquiry and Baffler, plus the spots staff and already mentioned in the introduction. I've had the wonderful experience of getting to trade ideas over DM uh, about comedy with Charlie for a while now, and I'm always eager to read their latest piece. We referenced quite a few of them in the conversation this week, and I'm putting links in the episode description if you haven't gotten to read them yet. Thank you for tuning in. Here's my conversation with Charlie Mark Brighter. 
Charlie Mark Breider, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very glad to have you. Uh, so you are a writer, and you've got bylines in The New Inquiry, Baffler, Garage, Art Forum, Momus, and a whole bunch more. And believe me, we can talk about writing if you want to today. But first, uh, I wanted to know if you've witnessed any good slapstick lately. Anybody stepping on a rake or falling through a table at a house party? Anything like that? Uh, no. <laughs> which, which sucks. That's okay. It's an honest answer. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked this, uh, I asked this because you are, you are concerned a bit with comedy and humor. So, and, and one thing that I want to talk about was that you're interested in your writing and research. Um, and some of the things that I've read in interrogating this, I guess, mainstreamish perception that anybody who desires social justice is an inherently humorless killjoy, uh, that somehow the pursuit of being politically correct is doomed to being unfunny or self-serious. And why do you think that people, uh, mainstream culture people are so protective of their right to make marginalized people the object of fun? The answer to your question is basically, I think that people who have power want to just be able to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I guess as we all do at all times to a certain extent. Um, and, so if you say to someone who has a lot of power, actually you doing whatever you want is slightly like destroys my quality of life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Seems but, like a simple request to be like, could you tone it down? Yeah. I think that the person is like, oh, well, I want to exist in this like fun, whimsical zone in which I can just follow my desires as they mm -hmm. come up. Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of like, almost like boy feeling of like buoyancy and sort mm. of like everyday interactions. And when someone is like, Hey, actually you're like whimsy and buoyancy and able to just say, sort of like do and say whatever, basically like your spontaneity, which I feel like is sort of like tied up in humor, your ability to do whatever you want is making me feel kind of bad. That person gets upset. Yeah. And says, well, actually, you're being humorless. We've talked about this a little bit over DM before we yeah. kind of you were telling me that some of this has to do with like pleasure seeking. And it was making me think about this idea that, you know, on the someone will say, well, this will infringe on my freedom of speech. If I can't have this buoyancy and whimsy and just say whatever I want, whenever I want, if I can't be spontaneous, you're stifling my free speech. And it seems like maybe it's a little bit less about freedom of speech and more about just like being a libertine and just being able to be unaccountable. Yeah. In a way, now that you're saying this, I feel like it's really just like reminding me of babies. Like, babies? I, <laughs> like, uh -huh. Lay yeah, it on me. yeah, I mean, I just am like, think of being a baby and you're just like, uh, hmm. I want to just do, <laughs> do whatever. Yeah. And when someone's like, Oh, you can't, I don't know, like barf on the carpet. It's like really upsetting because it's you infuriating. Just wanna, yeah. yeah. You just want to exist in this zone where you can do whatever and have it be good. And it's upsetting to have someone say no. And I think when I was doing that interview with Lauren, and this is something that Sarah Ahmed has said too, the way, um, sort of like who gets to be funny and who gets to not be funny um, is obviously dependent on social yeah. status. Like if you are the ringmaster of a circus and everyone sort of expects you to be this mean asshole basically and you're actually just like kind of nice, everyone will be like, wow, the ringmaster of the circus is such a great guy. We uh -huh. expect him to be the... Uh, like." In our little world, we expect him to be a dick. We expect him to be synonymous with the law, but instead he is, like, kind of fun. Um, that's, like, nice, and it actually sort of, like, reinforces his power because it makes it seem kind of like fun power. Uh -huh. But if you are a permalance clown in this circus um, and the ringmaster wants you to work 6,000 hours a week and you say, like, actually, not only do I not want to do that, but it's kind of rude when you make jokes about me having a red nose because not only I, I put on a red nose for my show but actually it makes me feel kind of like and something I'm insecure about the natural redness of my nose can you please not do that um, the ringmaster might get extremely upset because 
this clown is just supposed to be like a bot existing to fulfill mm. his desires. And the fact that the clown has refused to to do this is um, makes him kind of not funny. He can't take the joke about the, his nose. Whereas if the ringmaster of the circus were to, I don't know, refuse to take a joke, we would just say, oh, well, that's what we expect of the ringmaster because he's the ringmaster of the circus. Yeah, and what you're referring to just a minute ago about this interview, it was with Lauren Berlant. Something else was that it, it reinforces someone's power to just not be funny, but only certain people get to be humorless assholes. Totally. Um, yeah, and we yeah, take yeah. them really seriously, though, when they like can't, no, they don't fuck around, they don't joke around, but only a specific type of person. Otherwise, a person is very difficult to these other things, not a, yeah, uh, exactly. not a serious I mean, person or something. But I think what was cool about Lauren's work is that they turn these kind of like humorless asshole figures into sources of comedy um, or look or base or not. They, they don't turn them into the sources of comedy because they kind of already are funny um, in the sense that like, I don't know, just to like go with this like ringmasters uh, metaphor, mm-hmm. someone or maybe not. Let's just get rid of it. I hate it. Um, <laughs> uh, someone who wants total control as the like humorless, powerful asshole often does, is inevitably setting themselves up for failure. Mm-hmm. Depending on if you're in a tragic mode, that failure can be, you know, obviously like really sad. Um, and if you are in a funny mode, uh, this person's failure to kind of like ever really get it right or connect with people or get what they want is is funny. Mm-hmm. So this was like Lauren's grab, like the th- or not the grab, the thing that when I read it in an interview, I was like, oh my God, this person's such a genius freak. I have to talk to them was, I think they said like, not only do people accuse PC politicians of being really unfunny, but that unfunniness is in itself really funny. And for them, I think they're sort of like connecting this with whatever version of the culture wars we are experiencing i feel like that and then the trope and the, the trope of this is i guess like you know the sort of really solemn blue-haired septum pierced <laughs> oberlin student right, right, right. who's yeah. like pansexual and like never laughs and like takes everything yeah the antagonist the antagonist yeah. of kill all normies exactly like, exactly yeah. and that for the someone like Peterson. Just in case you didn't know which Peterson Charlie is referencing here, it's Jordan Peterson. But I bet you got that, you extremely alpha lobsters. On the one hand, this figure like sucks because this person won't let him say slurs. But on the other hand, he's obsessed with this figure because this figure is so funny to him. And mm. obviously some of that humor is like, well, I hate uh, trans people. I hate gay people. I hate, uh, people of color. And so there's just some, like, he's like getting off on hating them. But I think also maybe part of the thing that's so funny to someone like him is like, oh, this person is like this mini authoritarian who doesn't realize the extent of their own, the, the, the limitations on their own power. Yeah. 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 And so seeing someone try to control everything, uh, and, and not be able to, makes him laugh there's a simon critchley book i can't remember if you and i have talked about this before that's called on humor and you're talking about something very that where people experience one another as uh at least kind of sociocultural locals in one sense because of the internet but is rooted in what he says is kind of most western comedy is rooted in a xenophobia of this concept that foreigners are funny but foreigners don't have a sense of humor. Oh, interesting. Why does he relate it to foreigners in particular? It's kind of like the joke of like, oh, like the German. The German's like really funny to watch, kind of try to interact with people, but the German has no sense of humor. The German can't tell jokes. And I think it probably goes much further beyond Germans and is probably particularly like gets into a little bit more violent when it has to do with people who aren't also from Western European countries or something. But I think the idea is that they don't, get the local customs enough to be able to participate in the nuances of humor. Oh, I get it. And that, and by that they're funny, like, and they're funny acting. Oh fuck. Hold on. Sorry. My sister's here with a natural wine. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anyways, well, so before your sister got there, right, we were circling, we're circling around the interview with Lauren Berlant. Not really circling. We'd actually, I feel like we'd, we'd crested over it because you had actually mentioned this. And I'm quoting you, I think, here that trans people have for the right and liberals emerges uh, exemplars of humorless PC culture. And yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the... The trans question? Can you talk about the trans question in its relationship to your assertion that they are perceived as humorless PC police by both the right and liberals? And I'm asking you to unpack that because I do think that there are some people who are what I would term as like um, hearts in the right place libs. Yeah. Who would be like, no, we we don't think that. I guess like a historical take if that isn't too grand, um, which is just that uh, a lot of these, I guess the newest whiff of culture wars um, sort of coincided with, I guess, what people call like the trans visibility wave, Mm -hmm. which was also coinciding with, I guess, social media becoming more of a thing that more people were using I don't know, I guess I'm roughly dating this between like 2010 and 2015 Uh because this sort of like period of culture wars started at the same time as many people, myself included, were learning like what is a trans person, Mm. the two kind of became equated. So when people think like, God, I hate these freaking culture warriors, they immediately associate the genesis of the culture war with when trans people be sort of like entered pop culture. Got it. And so they just assume all social justice warriors are trans people and all trans people are social justice warriors, mm-hmm. which is not true. Yeah. Uh, second reason why trans people, I guess, like have, are just, I guess, like seen as especially humorless. I mean, this is like sort of a basic answer, but just like basic transphobia, like fuck those people. Yeah. Like the trope of the trans person is person who's like obsessed with bureaucracy like in the same way that there's this sort of like trope of the libertarian or republican imagination being trampled on by um governmental rules yeah sort of have this corresponding trope of the trans person who's just like Mm -hmm. i have 60 million pronouns me and my friends, and here are just more rules, arbitrary rules that you're going to have to follow. When you first said an obsession with bureaucracy, my first thought was like, they want the DMV to recognize their gender on their driver's license, and that that's like infuriating to somebody on the right yeah. that someone would want. And so I misinterpreted Yeah, your, no, no, no. I think that's right. And I think, sorry, this is a long answer, but I think the two... No, it's fine. The two last points I would make. One is that partly what's... Um, it makes sense that you bring up this sort of like connection. I think part of what makes that person in your scenario so angry is that is this feeling that I guess like since the eighties, since the beginning of neoliberalism, um, all public services have just been defunded. And part of how mm-hmm. um, the right has justified this is not that like they have actively been taking money away from social services, but that and in and, and enforcing austerity but that there are these Mm -hmm. just like various leeches. And I was actually talking about this with, to do a pod to pod shout out, uh, Beatrice Adler Bolton from death panel. What's up? Yeah. um, Who pointed out that part of what's going on tactically for the right is to invent various figures, whether it's Mm -hmm. the disabled person or the, really misogynoir uh, trope from the 80s, a sort of quote-unquote welfare queen. Yeah, the welfare welfare queen. queen, And now it's a sort of like... That's kind of out of fashion, right? Like they have to... So they uh they keep sort of like reinventing new incarnations of this. So I think a current current iteration is the sort of trans people person who wants to drain away your child's, uh, I don't know, public school district to fund 60,000 plastic surgeries. Yeah. (laughs) And so what they do is they take all these you know, varying tropes and then just sort of pit them against each other. Right. Instead of all of the different groups sort of like uniting together against these austerity measures. Yeah. Well, because they know that the left loves to eat itself and is very happy to kind of split into factions. And so you've mentioned to me previously 
the public distrust of anybody who isn't gender conforming is resulting from this kind of perception or, or, or that people think of them as gimmicky or inauthentic? Basically, yes. CNI, she says that the gimmick is like an effect that's specifically produced by capitalism. And I think kind of like cohered into a thing with conceptual art. Um, But the take is basically that the gimmick is like really annoying. And like, why is it annoying? Uh She's like, well, the gimmick seems to be like, like if you think of like a a piece of of conceptual art that you find really gimmicky, I feel like this kind of can make sense because it's just like, On the the one hand, it seems to be like working a lot. Like there's all this Mm. wall text, uh, it's in a museum. Mm. Um, There may be like some complicated video projections or uh, metal there. So it's like, seems to be working really Mm. hard, but it also, she says, is working too little because you look at this and you think, what the fuck? I feel nothing. I feel cheated. Um, and so the gimmick is, so the, her sort of line is like, the gimmick is that which seems to be working too hard, but also too little. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and I think that another thing she said is that the gimmicky seems to be both too old and too new. Hmm. Time is a flat circle. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something, this is another aspect of CNI's gimmick thing that I don't quite fully understand, but she says something, something that's, central to the gimmick is it's sort of exposing its own mechanism but what's interesting is because mm. versus like in modernist you know writing or some or something where everyone's just like wow it's art that talks about art and what art is like that's so amazing for the gimmick you're just like oh my god it's showing me what it's doing that's so fucking annoying like i'm i'm, mm. I'm seeing the work that it's put into its own self-invention and it's getting too much credit for whatever it's doing. Like Corey Archangel's 666 Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden just compressed back into an MP3 666 times? Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's so weird that you said that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. And now, a brief excerpt from Charlie's graduate school application essay. CNI's theory of the gimmick unpacks the trope of the gender non-conforming person, although I think this is also true of um, any trans person, maybe, uh, who cheats at neoliberalism, but in disappointing over obvious ways. The gimmick coagulates irritating capitalist contradictions around labor, value, and time. For Nye, the most significant contradiction is that gimmicks strike us both as working too little, e.g. as labor-saving tricks, but also as working too hard overstrained efforts at getting our attention. Why is gender nonconformity seen as gimmicky? This anxiety stems partly from some suspicion of capitalist gimmicks in general. Labor-saving devices have historically been bad for labor, and partly from confusion about where the value of gender comes from. Um, As Andrea Long Chu asks in On Liking Women, is gender something you produce and hold internally by simply realizing that you're trans, or is transness something people give you? Anxiety about how thoughts and feelings become value is hardly restricted to gender nonconforming people. It is widespread among information economy workers. Reducing gender nonconforming people to gimmicks is transphobic, but claims about the gimmicky aspect of gender nonconformity do, if only accidentally, uh, reflect schisms within trans studies about where transness comes from and a broader concern about information economy value production. I feel like I half digest that bit about the schism i like half understand is it a is it innate or is it environmental am i understanding that correctly or am i wrong because no i mean yeah sorry i cut you off i think that (laughs) but so keep going if you could elaborate on that because that part when you first sent that to me that part jumped out at me and i like to think oh i totally understand it but i think my understanding is limited to is that asking is that saying that some people who are researching this or theorizing or kind of discussing or saying, no, this is an innate, this is an innate thing. And some people are saying, well, it's, it's partially, or maybe also mostly environmental or responsive. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think the, so, okay, now I'm remembering the gimmicky connection, which is when you see a gimmick on the one hand, this is valuable because um, it's worth a lot of money or it has a lot of institutional clout but where is the use value? So where is like the thing that makes it special or useful or magical or whatever? 
what's and it doesn't seem to be there there's like this total surplus of exchange value but no use value um so you're just like what where is the value coming from and i think the connection Hmm. with trans stuff is sort of like where is the value of now that i'm saying this is maybe like a dumb analogy but sort of like where is the value of gender coming from so if i maybe like one way to think Hmm. of this is in terms of coming out where you think okay am i a trans person if um I just decide I'm trans and I don't tell anybody, but I've just, and nothing about the way I interact with the world has changed, but I just decided I'm trans or am I only trans if I'm out and I'm telling people and um, transness is coming, not just through like some way I've, you know, some relationship with myself, but some relationship um with other people okay yeah this makes sense the question is not where does it come from or what manifests it but rather when is it and what does it take to manifest it or something more along those lines like yeah. is it is it enough to feel it to believe it and to and to hold it into yourself or does one need the kind of bouncing off of some other social being or in some kind of context in order for it to have its kind of authentic existence in a sense yeah and 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 i i feel like i don't i'm not coming at this with like some with an with an answer i think like obviously people have different constraints constraints on them that allow them to Mm. come out or not and also being out is more difficult in certain ways than than not and it's just I feel like I'm less invested in the who is the true trans um, <laughs> and more in just like all people who identify as being trans in one way or the other just face like different difficulties. And it's a right. those things exist along, one could say, a spectrum. Mm-hmm. In the intro to the interview for the new inquiry with Berlant, you say something to the effect of that for Peterson and for these other people to go back to this idea of humorlessness that trans people don't have a sense of humor, which is only an indication that these people don't interact with trans people. I think that one, you know, kind of obvious example that I know that you and I are both fans of, we've also discussed it and you've written about it for Garage, but is the podcast Nympho Wars, um, which is extremely funny. And I was trying to think this over as we were coming towards this conversation. And I was, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to unpack here is part of why Macy and Theta's podcast is so funny. Oh my God, same. To me. Yeah. Did you come up with an answer? I think, well, I think part of what I thought of was, well, A, they're fucking hilarious and that the world is insane. But I think part of what is so, what would be so annoying, I think, to like a right-wing person about their podcast, what would be further infuriating by the fact that it's funny is that it's funny, sim- they simply, their existence is matter of fact in the universe that the podcast uh, happens in. That their, yeah. that their identity is not the source of every single element of it. That uh, something that you talk about in a review for Garage and this cinema of gender transgression series that was an anthology. This is a separate piece, but you talked about how um, to compete in the content market, trans people are encouraged to package their structural oppression as unique personal dramas fit to appeal to a majority cis audience. And I think Theta and Macy's show doesn't do that. Totally. And that the matter of factness of their existence or their relationship or the world that they live in kind of flies in the face of that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really right. One effect of the like ID Paul wave that I think is we're sort of like on the other end of is that it was like on an quote unquote aesthetic level, it was just like extremely boring. If you were sort of like a trans person speaking in any way in public, uh, you were just basically supposed to say like, I am trans, I'm very trans. Sometimes trans makes me sad. Sometimes Mm -hmm. trans makes me happy. Like one time when I was getting surgery, then I was also getting another surgery and then (laughs) I was crying and then I was infecting myself with hormones. And so Mm -hmm. you're just like, that sucks that trans people and obviously not just 
trans people, but anyone who is expected to sort of like give a, just that kind of stump speech about their existence. I was just like really boring to listen to or to have to do. Yeah. Theta and Macy just like totally, I guess, literally shit on the expect that expectation. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very, I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's the difference one could say between inter-community dialogue and intra-community dialogue. I feel like basically that's a way of saying like, okay, when you're talking with your friends, you are just like joking around and you have your own set of like inside references that you don't need to explain. Um, and you're not like trying mm. to justify to your friends why you exist or why they exist. You're just like talking about whatever um, versus like if you as are talking not to your friends, but to some like, I don't know, other external public entity. Um, you are just like, obviously you'd have to talk differently. You might have to justify why you and your friends exist or what explain what you're saying. And um, I feel like Theta and Macy's show, it knows that it's expected to do the second thing. Right. But instead is just like, fuck that. I'm going to do the first thing because actually who I'm mostly talking to is other trans women. And in a way I feel like, I don't know. It's just like, it's a nice way of decentering the assumption that like trans people need to always be talking to cis people. Mm -hmm. I feel like just by so completely not talking to them or their expectations, it sort of brings to the fore that we usually expect the opposite to be true. Right. A way of saying that is yeah. it like provincializes them or something. And as a listener, as a cis listener, I know that they're cultural or like social cues and references and things like that, that I'm not in on the joke. It flips the script on who the assumed audience is and thereby just by being as it is, is, I don't know. I'm not going to like throw romantic revolutionary terms onto something, but it feels radical in it's just totally. matter of fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. if I, that makes sense. I feel like I wonder if there's, I feel like there must, is there like an improv term or lol, whatever when, for when you just really like, I think it's like you, it's called like you commit to the bit or something. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I, I thought of this because they just really commit sure. to it. And to the extent that yes. like, they'll like say a thing that's like, maybe not that funny to begin with, but then just keep going so much so that these things will then become mm -hmm. like characters or like inside, like inside jokes in the show. Yeah. So like, for instance, like, Macy does this amazing Caitlyn Jenner impression and then she does it again. And then instead of it being like, <laughs> Oh my God, like one hit wonder, like this thing, it's like the opposite becomes true. It just becomes like funnier and richer. And now suddenly like when in season two's opener, like Caitlyn is just like a recurring character mm -hmm. in the show, mm -hmm. which is just, I don't know what that means or what it is doing, but it seems like a really interesting narrative and comedic technique it also upends the very conventions by which they're supposed to be funny on like the daily show or something where someone is kind of trotted out as like look at our representative yeah. from this group i think it's also like funny. i think specific yeah i think trans people are often just supposed to be the vanguard of like novelty in various ways um, I don't think this is like just again, like specific to trans people, but it is a thing that is demanded of trans people of just like, whether it's like, Oh, like you are going to like be the most, the newest, like literally like the newest gender, quote unquote, whatever that means. Or like you mm. are going to be like the most revolutionary form of gender, or just like you are going to be like constantly producing novel content online that we are then going to turn into listicles at non-unionized buzzfeed like whatever and so in, in a way this sort of like refusal to produce it's like a refusal to produce novelty and instead just like driving home the same non-new thing and instead instead making it into like mm -hmm. And instead, it's like the very like refusal to make it into a non-new thing eventually turns it into mm -hmm. a new thing because it's like constantly yes. recontextualized. Yes. I really like that explanation of it. 
it's the long con element of it. And con, I don't mean con in a pejorative sense. Yeah, I just mean like totally. it is, it is, it's the, like you said, it's the commit to the, it's like the refusing to falter or have it fit into like the particular mold and by the insistence that it is the way that they intend it to be, it becomes extra funny. It becomes its own genre and it, and it can't be, it's very impossible for buzzfeed or someone else to turn it into a clickable thing totally yeah yeah i mean uh it's like nympho wars is trying to make itself as unsound biteable as possible it reminds me of this is i'm i don't know why i'm making this comparison but it kind of the first time i heard it was kind of like the first time i saw ryan tricarton's stuff when i was where i was just like holy shit this person 100 percent knows how to look like they don't know what they're doing whoa yeah yeah in like the most in the most important and like impactful way. Totally. You know, like they a hundred percent know what they're doing and still somehow manage to make it. It's so listenable. It's so well organized and it sounds a hundred percent like they didn't try. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is very confusing because like you, you can't do that much shit without trying so much without working so hard it's actually the opposite of a gimmick almost exactly oh my god it's like the it's the fucking it's the inverse of the gimmick because it it's labor it's labor is over the fucking top but those means of production are actually hidden by presenting itself as like it's not pretending to be fucking revolutionary because it operates in a universe where like transness just is in a way uh, I and this is maybe a weird comparison, but I just watched um, that. Uh, I just started started getting into like some of Greg Rocky's movies, and I think I was thinking like watching them because he has these elements that are like so obviously like fake, like aliens. He can kind of like get away with this sort of like emotional realism because you're not sort of mm. like expecting it in a way. And I think almost like because they're you're when you go into InfoWars, you they're not trying to produce sound bites and if this and are quote unquote self but very self-consciously failing in that sense it allows them to sort of like do all this extra amazing stuff and so it's like they're still mm. not trying because trying is defined as like producing sound biteable content and so because they've failed at the one thing, quote unquote, that podcasts are supposed to do, they're supposed to, they can add in all this other stuff and have it seem like not trying. Mm. Like the podcast genre is supposed to be this new thing that's DIY that anybody can access and do all these types of things like that. And they're, but it's also supposed to fit into this paradigm of shareability, likability. I'm supposed to be able to recognize myself in the hosts. I'm supposed to be able to identify with certain things. There's, it's a vehicle for brands. It's a vehicle for like, oh my God. regardless of whether or not someone is sincerely endorsing a product, it is a product placement type of thing. And theirs is just completely fucking fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, it's really yeah, fun. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, when I interviewed... Theta and Macy, Theta talked a lot about Orson Welles and how Orson Welles did these yeah. radio plays. Oh, and yeah. yeah. And so actually how she's, she was like, well, we don't, in some, you know, I don't really see Nympho Wars as a podcast. We, we do radio play. Um, yeah. So it's actually, there's, in terms of genre, there's so much going on. It's like a, you just like list all the genres that exist in Nympho Wars. There's impressions, there's mm-hmm. music. There's sort of like slapstick, Mm -hmm. there's typical narration, there's interviews, um, there's Mm -hmm. sometimes just like regular conversation. And I guess on the you can either see that as like six genres stuffed into one thing, or you could see it as like one super genre, which is the radio play that sort of not many people are actually even doing now. Um, the first thing I ever saw Theta in was a play. Oh shit. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Was Marie and Bruce. So that was like, that was my introduction to Theta as a performer. But yeah, there's, um, this professor, at CUNY who I really like named Paisley Curra, who co-founded, um, trans studies quarterly. And, um, one thing he has consistently written, which, um, sort of reminded me of our conversation about Nympho Wars is that um, the funny part about uh, being 
just basically just that like a lot of trans people just like want to be normal. Um, and that's mm-hmm. like a lot of, you're sort of like expected to be automatically this sort of like gender abolitionist if you are trans, but actually like a lot of times what people are, you know, that's sort of like an unfair burden to place on one person or one group of people, um, especially, and that everyone should actually have the right to be a basic bitch is how I take Paisley's words. Yeah. I'm Charlie Mark Brighter. Welcome to Jackass. Anyways, the last thing, the last thing that I want to ask you about, I don't want to keep you because I know that your sister is there, but I just wanted to ask about, um, I wanted to ask how you took on the role as one of, um, today's finest jackass scholars and what what got you interested in in jackass because i have a long personal and academic history with jackass that i was so excited when i think okay sent me a long time ago the link to notes and to your chat so i really enjoyed watching it again yeah i mean i did this with my friend alex ayatarola who's just like one of the funniest people I know. Um, and I, I, uh, I remember once I was at like a party or something and someone just said, Alex is just going to be a millionaire. And there was no like explanation of like how, or that was going to happen. Everyone's just like, yeah, for sure. Um, Mm. on like pure charisma and wit. Um, and as evidence of this, he, um, came up with the idea to screen like a cl- random clips of Jackass like in slow motion um, behind us as we were giving our um, our panel, um, and it definitely seemed like video art e. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think um, if I remember our talk, it was basically just that. Um, when when was Jackass big? Like the beginning of like the like the early aughts, right? Like late nineties. Yes, aughts. very very. Yeah, it was on. Tell I have distinct. I have like one of those concrete memories, like the ones where I like I can see the whole room and everything. Yeah. I was a freshman in college. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's when it was, which would have been like 2000. Or maybe it was like 2001. It could have been when I was a... So I just remember the room that I was in and I know I was a college student. And I remember it being on a boxy TV and it was on MTV. And I remember it coming on TV. I've never had that experience. I'm 14 years old. I can't relate to that. (laughs) In terms of jackass, I think our argument was just like, uh, this is like beginning... So like neoliberalism has been around at that point for like 20 years. When did the dot-com bubble burst? Like right at 2000, I think. Yeah. So like Right around then? Yeah. Y2K-ish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the dot-com bubble has just burst. And I, we were like, it seems like in Jackass that there's this fantasy of just like everything, like things are like going kind of shitty. And I myself, like I'm beginning to become part of this like, uh... I don't know. I just feel shitty. And so maybe the way to escape the shittiness is not through like a more external form of like whatever collective struggle, but something we can all, I guess, like relate to, which is maybe, well, I can just get rid of myself. Uh, I think was like this, there's this song that the band, I can't remember the name is, but it was like one of the lyrics was just like, delete yourself. Oh, is it Atari Teenage Riot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Jackass was kind of like picking up on this iteration of the death drive of just like trying to get rid of yourself. But um, the thing is like because uh, in racial capitalism, white men will always be considered like subjects, um, you can't actually like delete yourself unless you're dead. Um, right. So you can, and it's, I think our argument was like, jackass is sort of an attempt to kind of like push this to the limit of like, well, if I stick race cars at my butt, if I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm shot with rubber bullets, then have I fully deleted myself? And the reason that this, sh- that this show that can go on enough to, you know, 
go into multiple seasons or whatever is because you can never actually fully delete yourself, but you can push yourself closer to deletion than you ever thought was possible. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, and we were drawing on black feminist thinkers like Sadia Hartman and Hortense Spillers who are kind of like, you know, there's a difference between being endowed with subjectivity and then trying to almost like erase it from yourself, obviously like never successfully versus never being given the status of human in the first place and then never being able to like put it on yourself. Um, And so part of why we were like both like hard relate to the jackass death drive tendency, but also like, not being like it me for lack of a better word is like if you sort of engage in the fantasy that you can fully get rid of yourself you're kind of like ignoring um all the people who for whom that's not even a possibility to begin with yeah yeah i really i really enjoyed reading the notes and watching the two of you talk about that and i think that one of my favorite aspects of it was about halfway through the talk you kind of chime in to say something along the lines of like basically you're like i don't expect jackass to tackle this but and then you kind of go into explaining this entire thing because jackass is not it's entertainment sponsored by mtv and beer basically but it's a really great stand-in for something that maybe would feel difficult for people to otherwise wrap their heads around if they enjoy that subject position kind of by default. Yeah. I mean, I think that was Alex. I remember that being Alex and I think this was his point and I think it's like really smart. Because, it wasn't you? Sorry. No, I think it was. No, no, I think it was totally fine. Um, <laughs> I, I remember what Alex didn't want to do was he was like, Alex, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but like, I think it would, it's like an easy sort of like critical formula to be like, Jackass was trying trying to be revolutionary and, but it's like, (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of just like, there's like a God, there's like a, but yeah, so it's like not trying to do that. So you can't kind of like get mad at it for failing to do something it wasn't trying to do. Right, right. I was like, yeah, Alex, that's smart. (laughs) Um, Well, Charlie, thank you so much for hopping on and talking with me about all of these complex topics. And I'm also very excited to, you know, be existing in a time when I can read your writings on some of these things, because as somebody who spends a lot of time wishing to articulate things that I'm thinking about stuff that's funny, but then also feeling like, man, comedy's full of shit and this is stupid and why do I care about this stuff? I really find it refreshing to be able to have somebody, um, you know, who I both think is very funny and I'm able to socialize with online, but also that is somebody who's out there writing a lot of very interesting things that I feel like inform me a great deal in terms of my perspectives on stuff. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about this stuff. Oh it's God. really exciting for me. Oh my God. No, I'm blushing. I've listened to like almost every episode you've done and, uh, I love them. So thank you for making them. Uh, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm blushing. I really love it, that show. Well, I hope that you and everybody else that I've ever gotten to talk to, I, am very selfishly just trying to canonize a whole bunch of people for like a niche audience of like three kids in the future who will find the SoundCloud page. But, you know, they'll be like, oh, all these people existed. But uh, anyways, Charlie, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Uh, and to everybody out there, thank you so much. As always, we will catch you next week. Bye. Delete yourself. Delete yourself.